Last time we spoke about the first battle of Java's Sea, Admiral Dorman and his Abda Strike Force had just been smashed in a previous battle known as the Naval Battle of Badlung Strait. Yet despite that defeat, Dorman simply turned right back to face the enemy with his remaining four cruisers and then went down in a blaze of glory, dying with his ships. The second battle of Java's Sea saw the annihilation of the remainder of the Abda Strike Force. With Abda gone, the Japanese invaded Java, intending to take the three major objectives, Batavia, Surabaya, and Silajap. Java had finally fallen, and now the conquest of Dutch East Indies had finished, three months ahead of schedule. Now the Empire of Japan had acquired its main objective for the war in the Pacific. Now Japan could focus more so on the reason for the entire war, that being the China problem. First order of business? How does Japan contain the leak that is Burma? This episode is the fall of Rangoon. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can even begin, I just need to remind you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if after all that you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I've made some recent content talking about hypothetical alternate history topics, such as, what if Japan attacked the Soviet Union during World War II? Or, what if Pearl Harbor was different? Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Over the past few weeks, a lot of crucial moments of the Pacific War have occurred. Abda and the Malay Barrier were annihilated. Java was conquered, and the Dutch East Indies campaign, for the most part, was complete. The Japanese Empire now held two main resource hubs in the east, Singapore, and the Dutch East Indies. With both the Dutch East Indies and the Malayan campaigns done with, the focus can now be narrowed on secondary objectives. One of those was the capture of a key port in Burma, that of Rangoon. In early 1940, Colonel Keiji Suzuki, using the alias of Masuyo Minami, arrived in Rangoon working as a secret agent for the Imperial General HQ back in Tokyo. He was pretending to be a correspondent for the Yomori Shimbun, a national Japanese newspaper, as well as pretending to be a general secretary for the Japan-Burma Association. His real instructions, however, were to sound out Burmese political opinions about the possibility of cutting supply from Rangoon going into China via the Burma Road. The main objective of the Burma campaign was to win over the Rangoon-Kunming supply route, 
and thus in doing so prevent the U.S. Lend-Lease from reaching Chiang Kai-shek. It's hard to continuously remember that despite the grand scheme of the Pacific War and all of its operations, patient zero, so to say, is the China problem. Everything is a derivative of the war in China. The Empire of Japan saw resources to be able to continue its war in China. Japan would be at war within China for 10 years, four of those being very, very intense. The Japanese had 35 divisions within China, with another 13 divisions stationed on the Mongolian border, comprising 1.35 million troops of its entire military force of 1.7 million. Defeating China was imperative. If they managed to do so, just imagine what those 1.35 million troops might be able to do elsewhere. Thus, Japan performed certain invasions, such as the invasion of French Indochina, Hong Kong, and Burma, in order to contain the leaks of supply getting into China. It's always about China. Now, when the Japanese seized Hong Kong, and their naval forces had firm control over the South China Sea, the Burma Road that wound from Lashio in northern Burma to Kunming in Yunnan province, became the only viable supply route for materials to reach Chiang Kai-shek in Chongqing. It was absolutely imperative for the Allies to keep China in the game, so to say. At the offset of the conflict, the British Chiefs of Staff sent Waffle a clear message, stating, quote, It is of the highest importance. Chiang Kai-shek should be given every possible support and encouragement we must, in conjunction with him, ensure that the Burma Road is kept open and that the flow of warlike stores reaches him. Continuation of Chinese resistance is indispensable and will pay a good dividend. Americans feel very strongly on this. End of quote. Now, while the Burma campaign was primarily done to contain the leaks to China, Burma itself was not without natural resources. Burma held a ton of rice cultivation, rubber plantations, supplied 30% of the world's supply of wolfram, that is tungsten, was a prime source of cobalt, and there was even a few oil fields at Yenang Yuang, that produced around 250 million gallons of oil annually. But the importance of Burma to Japan was matched by Britain's determination to hold it. Unlike Malaya and Singapore, which were notably sacrificed, as British Army Chief of Staff Lord Allenbrook said, Personally, I do feel there is not much hope of saving Singapore but feel that we ought to try and make certain of Burma. End of quote. So last week, we witnessed one of the most pivotal moments of the Pacific War, the fall of Java. The surrender of the Dutch island not only brought the total collapse of the Abda Command and the Malay Barrier, which had failed in every one of its missions, mind you, but it also consolidated the position of the Japanese Empire in the Pacific. 
having achieved supremacy over the two main resource hubs of the East, Singapore and the Dutch East Indies, and with the completion of the Malayan Campaign and the Dutch Surrender, new objectives appeared over the Japanese horizon. And today, we're going to focus on one of them, the British colony of Burma, with its key port of Rangoon, the last of the Chinese lifelines to the Burma Road. Now, after the disaster that was the Battle of Sitang Bridge, the Japanese were hindered for a few days, but they would be descending upon Rangoon. Because of the terrible performance of the defense of Burma thus far, on February the 28th, Field Marshal Wobble replaced Lieutenant General Sir Thomas Hutton with General Sir Harold Alexander. Alexander was an Irish guardsman who had been the hero of the rearguard action during the Dunkirk affair, and was regarded by Churchill as one of Britain's finest generals, and thus he was basically pushed forward as Burma's savior. This was not a universal view, however. Lieutenant General Sir Francis Tucker, for example, wrote, I think Alexander is quite the least intelligent commander I have ever met in a high position. End of quote. So, there was some criticism here or there. Alexander was a man with a long military career. He spent most of World War I in the Western Front. At 22 years old, he was a platoon commander in the 1st Battalion of the Irish Guards in 1914. He got wounded at the First Battle of Ypres, fought in the First Battle of the Somme, and went on to fight in many, many other famous battles of World War I. He came out of World War I as a colonel, and he had earned a ton of medals. During the outbreak of World War II in Europe, he was with the British Expeditionary Force in France, where he led the 1st Division's fighting withdrawal to Dunkirk. He led his forces valiantly to hinder the German advance, long enough to buy time for the others to be evacuated. After the ordeal, he was knighted and appointed Knight Commander of the Order of Bath, and he was promoted to full general before being shipped off to Rangoon. On top of General Hutton's replacement, as punishment for the disaster at Sitang Bridge, Waffle also dismissed General Smythe, demoting him and forcing his retirement. Ouch. One very guilt-ridden staff officer involved in the Sitang Bridge decision, Brigadier Hugh Jones, would later walk out into the sea and drown himself. It is a bit ironic that all of these chess pieces are being moved around by Waffle, as when you look at the grand scheme of things, it was Waffle's strategy in the first place to confront the IGA invasion force head-on that caused the Sitang River catastrophe. It would come out later that Lieutenant General Hutton had asked Waffle to withdraw all forces east of the Sitang River and create a stronger defense on its western side, in line with exactly what General Smythe advised. But it was Wavell who refused all of this. Also, way back on February the 9th, when the Japanese 15th Army began its march into Rangoon, 
Chiang Kai-shek had offered up the 5th and 6th armies to help defend Tonggu in central Burma, thus providing some relief for the British defense of Rangoon. But it was Waffle who refused this, under the justification that Burma needed to be defended by British troops rather than Chinese. Joseph Stilwell would later write about Wavell, stating, He didn't want the dirty Chinese in Burma. End of quote. Indeed, those racial attitudes just keep springing up and look to what effect they played in this war. It's rather outstanding. Of course, there is far many larger geopolitical matters, and it's not all about race. But it does seem that in some of these decisions, Wavell had made some poor choices at his level of decision. Anyways, back to Alexander. He arrived to take over Hutton with instructions, quote, To hold Rangoon, if possible, and failing that, to withdraw northward to defend Upper Burma while keeping contact with the Chinese. End of quote. Wavell, as usual, peppered Alexander immediately to perform offensives to give Rangoon more time to gain reinforcements. Alexander set to work ordering a counterattack against the Japanese northwest of Rangoon, but the situation was already pretty dire. In the city of Rangoon, there was wide-scale panic going on. An eyewitness wrote in his official report, quote, I do not think there was one sober man anywhere. The crews of the ships alongside and the troops had looted cases of liquor and were rolling about the place in the last stages of drunkenness. End of quote. Indeed, wide-scale looting and rioting were occurring. There simply did not seem to be much of a city left to defend, let alone a force to adequately defend it. Alexander determined immediately the city was undefendable, and he prepared its evacuation. The British forces in Rangoon faced encirclement and complete annihilation if they stayed. There simply was not enough ships to take them all back to India, and there most definitely was not enough adequate air cover to protect an evacuation fleet. Striking north to protect the Burma Road supply route to China had been strategically desirable, but it also happened to be the only escape route for the British forces at this point. Alexander determined that by moving north, his forces could attempt to make a stand before Mandalay and defend the Burma Road by linking up with the Chinese Expeditionary Army under General Le Ying. The presence of Chinese troops would irritate British high command, such as Wavell, but times were dire, were they not? Now, we have another actor we have briefly talked about emerging to the scene, that of Joseph Stilwell. Vinegar Joe, as he is known, was a complex character. He could speak a few languages, such as Spanish and Chinese, and as a result of his linguistic talents, was sent to China during the interwar years. His colleagues said that he was an acquired taste. He did not like the British very much, and they certainly did not like him. 
For example, when he was working alongside Louis Mountbatten, Stilwell described the man as a, quote, A glamour boy suited only to win Britain's last chukka in India. End of quote. He would say things like this, imitating the tough British accents of the British officers he met. In general, Stilwell loathed and distrusted the British officers, though he made the exception for General Slim, who he called a good limey. In turn, General Slim said of Stilwell, quote, He was not a great leader in the highest sense, but he was a leader in the field. No one else I know could have made his Chinese do what they did. He was undoubtedly the most colorful character in Southeast Asia, and I liked him. End of quote. Now, General William Slim, better known as Bill Slim, would prove to be one of Britain's most effective commanders. Slim had served during World War I, and he was wounded at the horrifying Battle of Gallipoli, and then again in the Middle East. He wound up in India by the end of the war, and spent the interwar years working with Gurkhas. When the Second World War kicked off, he was given command of some Indian brigades to take part in the East African campaign against the Italians in Ethiopia. Slim would be wounded in Eritrea, where he was strafed during an advance. After recovering from that, he was sent into the Anglo-Iraqi War and took part also in the Syria-Lebanon campaign and the invasion of Persia. By March of 1942, he was given command of the Burma Corps, a bit further on, in 1943, he would become the commander of the legendary Forgotten Army. But that will be another interesting story for another day. The reason I am bringing up Lieutenant General Slim is because while Alexander has become the GOC of British forces in Burma, he would gradually leave the tactical conduct of the campaigns in the hands of Slim, while he dealt more so with the political aspect of his command, i.e., trying to work with Joseph Stilwell, who held nominal control over the CEF. Although this all might sound like a complete disaster waiting to happen, it proved to be quite effective teamwork. Back to the action, the British officers did not have a lot of good things to say about Stilwell, such as Allenbrook, who said he was a, quote, Hopeless crank with no vision. End of quote. Stilwell himself thought of FDR as a quote, A weak Churchill patsy. The limeys have his ear, while we have his hind tit. End of quote. Stilwell's appearance did not help his case much either. He had a very prominent nose and a scrawny neck that made him seem a lot older than he actually was. Added to all of this, he had been injured by an explosion, and it caused him to develop a squint. Stewell's job was an enormous one. He was, simply put, to make sure China remained in the fight. 
Chiang Kai-shek gave Stilwell the role as his chief of staff, demonstrating the importance he placed on the American-Chinese alliance. Despite Stilwell's fluency in Chinese, he failed to understand the nuances of the Chinese culture, and this led to many misunderstandings about the nature of his role from the very offset. Essentially, Stilwell saw himself as the de facto commander-in-chief. Chiang Kai-shek's commanders saw him as a superior form of advisor. Chiang Kai-shek viewed Stilwell well, basically as a quartermaster for U.S. supplies, more or less. It goes with no surprise Chiang Kai-shek did not wish to relinquish control of any Chinese army, because this would diminish his power. Regardless, uh, Chiang Kai-shek acquiesced and formed the Chinese Expeditionary Force, using the 5th and the new 6th armies under the command of Lieutenant General Stilwell. The mission of the CEF was to protect the Burma Road, and by the start of March, the CEF was stationed along the Burma Road in the Shan States and sent one division to Tonggu to reinforce the 1st Burma Division. Now, back at the war at hand, by March the 3rd, General Aida ordered the 112th and 143rd Regiments to advance on Wa, which is modern-day Myanmar, just a bit northeast of Penggu. The objective was to get his forces into an encircling position to trap the fleeing British forces and to destroy them at Pengu. The British 17th Infantry Division had just been decimated and were scattered all about on the run to Rangoon after the Sitang Bridge incident. These were remnants of the 16th and 46th Indian Brigades and many units of the 48th Indian Brigade. They would be reinforced by the 63rd Indian Brigade, the 7th Armored Brigade, and the 1st Field Regiment, coming from Rangoon. General Aida had also sent the 55th Division to rearguard at Daiku, and the 33rd Division to march west through some really dense wooded hills near Pengu, to find and then travel down the main highway to seize Rangoon at maximum speed. General Aida believed the British would try to perform delaying actions as most of their forces fled to Rangoon to put up a defense. Thus, he intended to hit Rangoon before they ever had the chance to do so. Disaster would strike early when on the evening of March the 5th, the incoming 63rd Indian Brigade was ambushed by the Japanese and suffered heavy casualties, including the deaths of many officers. The following day, the Japanese began to bombard Pengu with their artillery before the 143rd Regiment began its assault. Just due south of Pengu, the 7th Hussars of the 7th Armored Brigade were then ambushed by the Japanese, who tried to take them out using some anti-tank guns. Fortunately, the Hussars managed to overrun them. The Allied M3 Stuart tanks, affectionately nicknamed Honeys by the British because they were a, quote, smoother ride and were quite fast. Well, they ran into some of those Japanese Type 95 Hago tanks. A pretty confusing and chaotic battle ensued, whereas the M3s absolutely smashed four Type 95s before peeling off and commencing a fighting withdrawal. By this point on March the 6th, Alexander commenced with the demolition of Rangoon, 
executing a scorched earth tactic to deny its use to the incoming Japanese. Alexander had a really risky plan at work. He was placing his units in such a way as to make the incoming Japanese forces believe he was performing a fighting withdrawal back to Rangoon. But in reality, all of his forces were performing delaying actions to allow them all to escape going north. By the morning of March the 7th, Alexander and Slim ordered the forces to strike out north with the intent of joining up forces with the incoming CEF. However, the move north came far too late, as General Aida's 33rd Division had already managed to circle around to the west of Rangoon. To their north at Taokien, the 214th Regiment, led by Colonel Takanobu Sakuma, put up a blockade on the main road that led towards Prom. The town of Prom was an important inland commercial center on the Irwadi River, some 175 miles from Rangoon, and it was to be one of the first major points the Allies were going to travel to on their way going north. So now the 48th Indian Brigade was being surrounded at Pegu and beginning to pull back, as Alexander and Slim had just sent their forces north to meet up with them, to go further north to Prom. All of these forces ran smack dab into a major roadblock at Taokien, and it needed to be cleared if they wanted to escape north. All the meanwhile, they were at risk of being completely surrounded at any moment. Their first attempt was spearheaded by the 7th Hussars using some M3s, but they were forced to withdraw after losing a single tank and taking some rather heavy casualties. A second attack was followed up with some heavy artillery, but it proved to be unsuccessful as well. They tried again that day, failing yet again, and were forced to hunker down and establish a defensive perimeter near the blockade. The Japanese counterattacked at night, which fell into some really bloody hand-to-hand combat, but the Japanese were unable to break the Allied defensive perimeter. Alexander and Slim knew it was only a matter of time before they were completely surrounded. They had no choice. They had to break through, and quickly. The next day, they tossed the 7th Hussars and the 11th Sikhs at the roadblock and found only a very small garrison present. And the Sikhs, rather unexpectedly, broke into a bayonet charge, sending the small Japanese force running for their lives. To the rather pleasant shock of Alexander and Slim, their entire force was able to simply march on north without any resistance after this small encounter. As Slim later observed, All the Japanese commander had to do then was to keep his roadblock in position and with the rest of his troops attack the 40-mile column strung out along the road. Nothing could have saved the British, tied up as they were by their mechanical transport to the ribbon of road. End of quote. If the Japanese had held the roadblock, the entire Allied force was a literal sitting duck. They would have been surrounded and completely annihilated. So what the hell happened? It turns out, General Aida's order for the 33rd Division to push with lightning speed to get over to Rangoon and surround the city had completely backfired. 
The roadblock at Taokien was strong and would have held up the British, but they had only placed the roadblock with the intent of protecting their division's flanks, as the majority of the division was marching through on towards Rangoon. The commander on the field, General Sakurai, had simply lifted the blockade after the first few battles to join the rest of the division surrounding Rangoon. Thus, as he was doing so, the entire Allied force simply slipped right past him. While the Allied force made their escape north, the Japanese closed in on Rangoon only to see it covered in a cloud of billowing smoke as its port and oil facilities were ablaze. As recounted by General Sakirai, quote, Around midday, on March the 8th, the 215th Regiment entered Rangoon to find to its surprise that the city was unoccupied and deserted. I immediately ordered my army to pursue the British column, which I had now realized was the whole of the British forces from the Rangoon area. It was too late, and the golden opportunity to destroy the British garrison was all but lost. End of quote. Meanwhile, during all of this, in the political scene, so to say, General Alexander's force, despite having some old-fashioned British distrust of Chiang Kai-shek, or the Chinese for that matter, were united in their conviction that the best strategy was the retreat north. Alexander's concern and propriety was to bring his troops back for the defense of India while using the CEF as a buffer. Chiang Kai-shek advocated for the defense of Mandalay in central Burma, demanding the British provide more active assistance before the CEF made its way to Mandalay. Both the British and the Chinese thus thought southern Burma was lost, but not Stilwell. When Chiang Kai-shek told Stilwell he wanted to send the CEF to defend Mandalay, Stilwell argued they should perform an offensive operation and push the Japanese out from Tonggu. Chiang Kai-shek opposed the idea, arguing that they had insufficient air cover, nor tank support, for such an operation in Burma, and that if the 5th and 6th armies were lost, then the defense of southwestern China would be much more difficult. Chiang Kai-shek reiterated to Stilwell, while he retained command of the CEF, he had asked that Stilwell still wait for Chiang Kai-shek's orders to decide the right moment for such an offensive perhaps after they built up a presence in Mandalay. Stilwell acquiesced during their first meeting, writing in his diary that he was amazed at how the Chinese had accepted him. Then, after a few more meetings where he butt heads with Chiang Kai-shek, more and more, he began to refer to Chiang Kai-shek in his diaries as, quote, Generalissimo Peanut. During their retreat northwards to Prome, Alexander's troops were strung out over 40 or so miles. They were extremely lucky not to be attacked by Japanese aircraft. As was usual for the Japanese campaigns of the first six months of the Pacific War, infantry and tanks advanced so fast that they had outrun their own supply chain. Thus, for a few precious weeks, Japan's rolling advance came to a grinding halt. Lest it be said, logistics, 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 it was a particular crux for the IGA. 
Lieutenant General Hideyoshi Obata's fighter Sentai ran out of range extension drop tanks. These are fuel tanks that aircraft can literally eject after using them to allow them to go greater distances. It was going to take a few weeks to repair the Mingalodon airport, and thus the Sentai could not move forward. Thus, the reason Alexander's forces were not seeing any Japanese aircraft was because the JAAF were far too busy trying to repair airfields so that they could get their aircraft that far out. On March the 9th, the Allies' new main airfield at Mengue, near the oil fields at Yanyang Yuang, southwest of Mandalay, was discovered by the Japanese. The JAAF did not attack immediately, as they had reported. In order to deceive the enemy, we supported operations in other areas, awaiting a greater assemblage of the enemy's strength. End of quote. Now, I know a lot of you who know about the Burma campaign are waiting to hear about the Flying Tigers and the great air battles for Burma. The reason I have not talked about it is because we are having a special episode dedicated to just it, and it's yours truly who wrote that one. You probably noticed with the YouTube series as well this happens to be the case. I don't believe we've talked about the Flying Tigers. But rest assured, the episode will be coming out uh, in the next few weeks upon this being released. So be patient. It's going to be a good one, I assure you. But for now, we need to move on towards the Dutch East Indies cleanup operations. A bit further to the south, mop-up operations were required for various newly acquired territories. The Tiger of Malaya, General Yamashita, for example, was looking to send some of his chocolate soldiers, the Imperial Guards Division, to occupy central and northern Sumatra. Not a particularly glorious job. The leader of the Imperial Guards Division, Takuma Nishimura, was just finishing up his large role during what is called the Sukqing Massacre. It was a systematic purge of Chinese Malayans within Singapore and Malaya after its capture. That purge took place between February 18th to March the 4th, killing an estimated 70,000 people. That particular massacre is one that goes often unsung, in most books, mind you. But it was a pretty brutal one, and there's a lot of people responsible for it. But Nishimura happened to just play quite a large role. Over in Sumatra, as I had said in some previous episodes, the Dutch had been holding out somewhat. General Overeka had his men in positions within the middle to the northern provinces of Sumatra. The Dutch were trying to reconquer Palembang, and from there hopefully expel the Japanese from Sumatra. A titanic feat, to be sure. For weeks, the better equipped Japanese were repelling multiple groups of Dutch soldiers, trying to take key locations, such as Palembang. Then on March the 8th, news reached Sumatra that Java had fallen. Without Java, the resistance in Sumatra had lost its only dependable supply line and could no longer go on the offensive. From then on, it was to be a defensive war. General Overeka decided to retreat with his 9,000 remaining soldiers and headed to the Alice Valley, which lies in the northern part of Sumatra. 
Yamashita's plan was to land the Kobayashi Detachment on Sabang Island and Kotaraja, and to land the Yoshida Detachment on Idi to secure the oil fields at Langsa and Pangalabrandan. The main Japanese force, five battalions with a tank company, would land just northwest of Tangjung Tsiram and advance on Medan. By March the 10th, the invasion force escorted by Admiral Ozawa, leading five heavy cruisers, three light cruisers, and ten destroyers, departed from Singapore to go to its objective. The Kobayashi detachment hit Sabang Island on March the 12th and found zero resistance. The other Kobayashi units, who landed at Cape Pedro and just due north of Kotaraja, swiftly and with ease took its airfield. The Yoshida detachment landed just a bit south of Idi and found no resistance when they marched on its oil field. After securing all of their objectives, each unit began to march in the direction of Medan. Meanwhile, General Nishimura ordered part of his main force, two battalions of the Imperial Guards Division, to go south to cut off any possible withdrawal of the Dutch defenders while the main contingency of his army marched on Medan and took its airfield. Yet, by this point in time, the Dutch were already performing a fighting retreat north to the Alice Valley. They had already destroyed their airfields and harbor facilities as they had run north. The Japanese quickly overran Dutch defenders scattered about in pockets all across Sumatra, such as at Prapat, Porcia, and the Balige. By March the 15th, a large amount of Dutch soldiers were retreating from Moratsibo, and were cut off by the Japanese. They had no choice but to surrender. When Nishimura's men approached Midan, they found it unoccupied. There was no resistance, and thus they fanned out to hunt down the Dutch forces. The majority of fleeing Dutch soldiers began to consolidate at Kuta Bulu Bentang, where they were heavily bombarded and soon completely surrounded. General Overeke had another enormous issue besides the Japanese. Most of his native forces were beginning to desert and even rebel against the Dutch army. Seeing the twofold disaster that was befalling his force, he ordered his men to make a withdrawal of Kuta Bolebentang on the night of March the 24th to try and meet up with those who had already made it to the Alice Valley. Nishimura's Imperial Guards were in hot pursuit, however, with the Kobayashi detachment also advancing south, trying to trap the fleeing Dutch. More and more desertions began to pile up, and by March the 27th, the Kobayashi detachment reached the Dutch HQ at Blankira, which had been left undefended, leaving General Overeke with no alternative but to surrender with his remaining force of just 2,000 men. Most of these Dutch prisoners of war, alongside Indonesians and Javanese, would become Ramusha, the Japanese term for laborer, better called forced laborers, and they would help build things like the Mura Kalaban Maro Pikanbaru Railway. By the time it was completed in August of 1945, almost a third of the European POWs had died and around 16,000 Indonesian and Javanese Romusha of a total of 120,000 had survived. Eek.
malaria, dysentery, and the famous beriberi. For those of you who don't know that one, it's basically a type of scurvy you get when you eat uh, just rice for a long time. You don't have any vitamins. Well, these were the principal reasons for their deaths. Alongside, of course, murder, overwork, and general mistreatment. General Overeka, alongside many KNIL officers, were shot in 1945 in view of the impending Japanese defeat. Now, quite a curious and fairly unknown incident would occur in early March. Japan launched Operation K, a small-scale air raid against Pearl Harbor, believe it or not. Just a few weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the IGN began to discuss how best to take advantage of their long-range Kawanishi H-8K flying boats. They had some plans to use these planes to bomb the western coast of the US. And yes, there is a special script made for this one, and it's yours truly who wrote it, but it's going to come out much, much further in the future. Anyways, before even approaching those kinds of ideas, they first wanted to get updated information on how the repair work was going for the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. When they finally decided to go through with a small raid, they decided to send pilots Hisoa Hashizume and Shosasuke Saseo. They would fly two flying boats from Wotje Atoll, each holding four 550-pound bombs. The trip was 1,900 miles to reach the French Frigate Shoals, the largest atoll in the northwestern Hawaiian island chain, where they were refueled before setting off another 550 miles to get to Oahu. As an insurance policy, the I-23 submarine stationed itself south of Oahu to pick them up just in case. When the two flying boats approached Oahu, the radar station at Kauai picked them up and P-40 Warhawks were dispatched to intercept them. Unfortunately for both parties, some nimbus clouds over Pearl Harbor prevented both sides from locating each other. Pilot Hashizume got lost and he ended up dropping his four bombs on the slopes of Tantalus Peak, an extinct volcano. The bombs landed around 300 meters away from Roosevelt High School, breaking a few windows. Pilot Sasio, it is assumed, dropped his bombs straight into the ocean. Both pilots were unable to get any intelligence on Pearl Harbor because of the bad weather and poor visibility. A follow-up raid was made on March the 10th, but this time Hashizume's flying boat was shot down by some rooster buffaloes near Midway Atoll, putting an end to any further raid operations. February and March would bring some new hit-and-run raids for the Americans. On February the 20th, the Lexington and its associated task force made the bold foray straight into the heart of the new Japanese empire by hitting Rabaul on New Britain. Meanwhile, Halsey aboard the Enterprise and her associated task force visited Wake Island on February the 24th to hit it a bit before turning towards the Marcus Island on March the 4th, which it also bombed. The hit on Marcus Island particularly terrified the IGN, as it was only 600 miles away from the home islands. What if the Americans took it and used it to stage a raid against Tokyo? By March the 10th, a new task force was formed around both Lexington and Yorktown under Vice Admiral Wilson Brown, whom sought to hit Sala Moea and Lei on the north coast of New Guinea. Going back in time somewhat, Quite a few episodes ago, we spoke about the Japanese invasion of Rabaul. 
The operation against Rabaul was part of a larger plan, one that sought the further invasion of Port Moresby in British New Guinea. That Australian-held port was only 300 miles from Cape York Peninsula, the northeast extremity of Australia. Such a base of operations would prove to be an absolute menace to Allied shipping within the Coral Sea. Yet, in order to perform such an operation, it was deemed necessary that Salamaua and Leahy were captured first. The airfields at Salamaua and Leahy would allow for air support necessary to take most of the region. Thus, back on February the 8th, the Japanese expanded their landing operation of Rabaul and proceeded to capture Surumi and Gazmata, taking their small airfields without any opposition. With Gazmata firmly under their control, they could now hit Salamawa and Lei. The IGN invasion plan was to land the Hori unit led by Major Hori Maseo of the South Seas Detachment to capture Salamawa and its airfield, while the Kure Detachment of 620 Marines would land on Lei to secure it. They were escorted by two light cruisers and six destroyers led by Admiral Kajioka. However, as I had mentioned, back on February the 20th, Task Force 11 with Lexington had been hitting Rabaul, giving a major headache to Admiral Inoue, and thus delaying the entire operation. The Japanese launched sorties of bombers to repel the Lexington, and managed to turn the US task force back at the cost of 23 aircraft. To prevent further raids in the area, Admiral Inoue dispatched a support fleet consisting of four heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and two destroyers under Admiral Goto. Thus on March the 5th, the invasion force was able to depart Rabaul, and through a very furious storm, the Hori unit managed to land on Salamawa in the early hours of March the 8th, while the Kuri detachment landed on the southern coast of Lei. Receiving word of the impending invasion, 200 Australian defenders retreated further inland to Wawa, after destroying most of the facilities they could to prevent their use to the Japanese. It only took the Hori unit a few hours to capture Salamawa's airfield and the local town of Kela, while the Kuri detachment secured the airfield at Lei. With the capture of Salamawa and Lei, the beginning of an offensive against other places were set into motion. The IGN agreed that Australia should be isolated from the United States and proposed to push further east through the axis of the Admiralties, the Bismarcks, the Solomons, and eventually New Caledonia, Samoa, and even possibly Fiji. This was the precise line of attacks that the US Admiral King feared most. The path of least resistance to begin this process was to first seize Port Moresby then New Caledonia, and so on. Yet above all else, Admiral Yamamoto sought one thing, to burn, sink, or capture American aircraft carriers. The need for a decisive naval battle loomed like a specter. Now here is where we are going to return to the Americans, who have received word of the new Japanese menace in the Salamawa Leahy area. Vice Admiral Wilson Brown, with his new Task Force 10, built around Lexington and Yorktown, advanced undetected into the Gulf of Papua, just off the southern shore of New Guinea, where he would commence an attack. At 8.40 a.m., 30 Dauntless dive bombers, 13 Devastator torpedo bombers, and 8 Wildcat fighters 
took off from Lexington, while 30 Dauntless, 12 Devastators, and 10 Wildcats took off from the Yorktown. As the aircraft approached, they found no enemy aircraft in the air, thus they knew they had acquired the element of surprise. The Lexington wave arrived over Leahy at around 9.20 a.m. and immediately set to strike the Japanese shipping. The Japanese transport ships were strafed by scouts before the Dauntless began dive-bombing them and the Devastators dropped their torpedoes. One transport at a dock and another two within the harbor were immediately sunk. A third was set on fire and subsequently beached itself at Leahy in a panic. The Lexington wave then headed for Salama to join Yorktown's group. En route, they took the opportunity to bomb the cruisers Yubari and the destroyers Asanagi and Yunagi, and also the mine lair Tsutsugaru, and two more transports. Meanwhile, the Yorktown group, which had been following on the heels of the Lexington group, repeatedly hit Yubari, causing severe damage to it. The Americans assumed they had sunk Kajioka's flagship, but the Yubari had managed to control the damage after evading over 67 bombs and 12 torpedoes. Yikes. The Yorktown group strafed the hell out of Salama, causing severe damage on a seaplane tender and sunk a minesweeper. Following Brown's carrier raid, eight B-17s of the 435th Bombardment Squadron flying from Garbutt Field at Townsville arrived on March the 11th and bombed the entire area, causing enormous damage on the facilities, and yet again on the poor Ubadi. For Brown's carrier raiders, the attack was a ton of high-speed steaming across the long Pacific distance, culminating in just a few hours of largely uncontested airstrikes. War correspondent for the Chicago Daily, Robert Casey, who went with one of the aircrafts, noted, We travel something like 20,000 miles in two months for a total of about five hours of tense action. End of quote. What did the U.S. carrier raids as a whole achieve? Certainly, the Japanese newspapers did not report anything about them. But private messages amongst the IGN showcase their severe psychological effect. Admiral Matome Yugaki, the chief of staff to Yamamoto, recorded in his diary, They have come after all. They are some guys. The raids were a reproach that went to the heart, and they made us look ridiculous. End of quote. Admiral Yugaki was disgusted that the Americans had not been detected in their approach and noted that the Marshall Islands should have been better prepared for such attacks. Captain Yoshitaki Miwa the Combined Fleet's Chief of Operations, reported that Yamamoto's entire staff, quote, could only grit their teeth and jump up and down in frustration. End of quote. As the first reports poured in about the raids, the IGN sent bombers based from truck to chase the U.S. carriers to the east. Several submarines also departed truck on the hunt. Japanese radio intelligence strapped down listening carefully for any violation of radio silence, hoping to catch Halsey or Brown. 
Admiral Yugaki lamented how the U.S. carrier raids had been so well-timed to coincide with the IGN activity going on in the south. They had managed to hit the IGN's weak flank just when major operations were being engaged elsewhere, such as Java. He said this, the enemy's attempt was most timely because of our operations were focused in the southwest Pacific and the defensive strength in the marshals was thin. In addition to a fairly big result, they achieved their purpose of diverting our strength. Carriers closed in and heavy cruisers bombarded. It was very daring. It seemed like we had been somewhat fooled. There is little chance of the enemy coming up again tomorrow morning. Anyways, we have missed the game. End of quote. The dispatch of so many IGN forces to hunt down the U.S. carriers as they fled, as Mitsuo Fuchida called it, was a... A wild goose chase, which was both futile and impulsive. End of quote. Truck was hundreds of miles away from the marshals, and in the time it would take the IGN to cover the distance, the U.S. task force would already be safe at port. Despite this fact, even when it was clear the Americans had escaped, two out of Nagumo's six carriers, the Shokaku and Suikaku, were detached to patrol the waters off Japan, reducing the fearsome striking power of the Kidobutai. Indeed, one of the major consequences of the U.S. carrier raids was that it brought the IGN to realize the vulnerability of their capital. The raids did not do great damage, but the IGN's face was at stake. What if the Americans tried something like this against Tokyo? Admiral Yugaki predicted the Americans might try to land a punch on Tokyo itself, stating, Quote, they will adopt this kind of method in the future, and the most probable move they would make would be an air raid on our capital. It was fortunate for us that the enemy only scratched us on this occasion and gave us a good lesson instead of directly attacking Tokyo. Captain Miwa concurred, stating, Whatever happens, we must absolutely prevent any air attack on Tokyo. End of quote. There was no foolproof defense against carrier raids, and a conviction grew in the minds of the IGN that above all else, they must get rid of the U.S. carriers. Yamamoto needed his decisive naval battle, and that obsession only grew. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if after all that you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you go check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Where, might I add, I received many questions from the Kings and Generals community, and thus I decided to make some episodes to answer those very questions. Three episodes have already been made, and I hope you check them out. The first one being, 
What if the Empire of Japan attacked the Soviet Union during World War II? What if Pearl Harbor didn't happen or was different? And lastly, what if Japan won the Battle of Midway? Check them out, we mean a lot to me. Alrighty, while the Allies did pull the rug somewhat on the Japanese in Burma, the loss of Rangoon was still a significant blow, and not just to Burma, but also to Chiang Kai-shek, who was depending on the port to send supplies via the Burma Road to his base in Chongqing. The US carrier raids proved to be psychologically effective, and the IGN began to bite its nails looking for a decisive naval battle to finally rid the Pacific of the US carriers. Would they find it? And where? Join us next time.